and they came up to me, they came up to Rabbi Trump, and it just so happens we have the good fortune of having what I would call a Yachut HaMeshulash that we can work on tonight together. And it's not only the Yachut HaMeshulash of three Rabbanim, but interestingly enough, perhaps you could say even three rabbis of different perspectives and of different generations. And um, we have one, of course, who is beloved and known to us, who will open with a discussion of the four questions of the Manishtana. I'll continue with a discussion of the Arba Abanim, the four sons. And we have the great privilege of Rav Beryl Wine, my beloved father-in-law and mentor, who will be discussing the Arba Kosos. So without further ado, thank you again, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi Trump. I want to thank Rabbi Tadelbaum for the idea and putting together this beautiful program. And um, I certainly am one of the people eager to hear the rest of the program. Um, so, I'll just try to make the, the, the model part as short as possible so I can get to hear the, the rest of Metzah Hashem. So, just wanted to start off, we're going to start off talking very briefly about the four questions. The first of the, th- the first three the first of the three topics, which is the four questions. Now, this is a really fascinating topic, and I'd like to start off first of all with an apocryphal story that occurred. Now, this story is, I've seen attributed to Rabbi Jacobowitz, the, chief, the past chief rabbi of England, and there's absolutely no way that the story actually happened to him. But nonetheless, the story, the, the story has, has, has significance, and it, it talks about how he was knighted. Now, Rabbi Jokowitz actually was knighted. He had a very good relationship with Margaret Thatcher, very fascinating backgrounds and, inter- and interaction that they had on their conservative uh, shared beliefs. Nonetheless, he was, he was nominated for knighting, and they said that there, there were five nominees who were coming to the Queen to be, to be knighted, and there were certain things that one has to do to, become, to, to, to receive knighthood. One is to kneel before the Queen and to say some, some verses in Latin that relates to the Christian Bible. And when it came his turn, he wasn't so keen on this. And, and this is the part, obviously, which could not have occurred. Um, and uh, he said the first thing that came to his mind, which was, And she turned to Sir Prince Charles and said, Why is this knight different from all other knights? And um, clearly the story could not have happened because there is, the, there is no way that Raja Jakovic would have been in such a situation and would have clearly planned this before and clearly there would have been an a, a, a arrangement made. Nonetheless, why is this knight different from all the ni- other knights is something which is known across the world, across the spectrum about Judaism. This is our knight. Why is this knight so special? And we have to think about it because, you know, there are some very unusual things that we Jews do. Meaning, on the 15th of Tishrei, when we're all sitting outside in huts while the rain's pouring down into our soups and we're trying to eat an egg-sized amount of, of bread, you know, we could also, our children can also turn to us and say, you know, you know, Dad and Mom, isn't this a little unusual? Right? There are other points in our year we could also ask this question, and we don't ask this question. So why is it specifically this night, which is the night we ask why this night is different? That's really what we, what we need to try to appreciate. So it goes back, actually, inter- interestingly enough, to the Mishnah itself. The Mishnah actually tells us these four questions, and it describes, there's actually a question which is supplanted, there's another question which we don't ask today, which was in the times when the Korban Pesach was actually brought, but nonetheless, almost identical format. And the Mishnah tells us, V'kan ben Shoel Aviv, and so the child asks his father, And if the child does not ask, then we teach them. And then, thank God we have 
We have teachers at our schools and rabbis that our little children are taught this beautiful, uh, this beautiful description in many various languages. Um, what is most astounding is that the Gomorrah says that's not enough. The Gomorrah quotes a Brisa, which really makes a, a really uh, a remarkable assertion, and that is, is the following, is what happens if there are no children at the Seder for this particular, this particular year? What happens if there ain't anybody to be standing on that chair singing in Yiddish Manishana? So Gomorrah says, Tana Rabbonon, a rabbi's teacher says in Psachim, Dav Kuf Aleph, the Gomorrah tells us, if the child isn't able to ask, then there has to be a conversation between spouses, the wife and the husband. There's no one around. Imagine a case where a person is completely alone for their, for their Seder, wherever they are. What happens? You have to ask yourself. There has to be a dialogue between you and yourself. Hopefully nobody else is watching. <laughs> there's, very odd, there's very odd interaction. But nonetheless, says, says, says the Gemara, there has to be a question and answer. The question and answer is so imperative that it has to happen irrespective of who's asking it and who's answering it. That's an unbelievable point. It, 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 it's, it's almost like the question and answer format is so necessary it needs to be created whether you like it or not. In fact, the Rambam goes so far as to say, Lahalocha. talked about this very, very briefly last night. The Rambam says, Lahalocha. He says, how do you do this? How do you, 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 you take these questions? You push them to the next level. The Rambam says very clearly, the way we do this is, you'll, you'll bring out candy. You give to the kids candy. And the kid says, you know, at the beginning of the meal, Dad? You know, like, or, the, or, or what you do is you take, away, you take away the table. In those days, each person had their own serving table where they would eat. So you take away the table from in front of them so the kids get to think this is strange. And then they start asking questions. You stimulate. You catalyze questions. But it shouldn't be, by the way, that we stimulate questions just to tell them that we were stimulating, that we were asking them questions. You know, like, meaning there's so many times in the Seder you say, well, why do you do that? So you should ask. Well, there should actually be a discussion that follows that, that point. It isn't, it isn't a perpetual loop. Right? Um, so nonetheless, we, the Ram goes so far as to say, it gives you techniques of how to stimulate questions. The night has to start with questions. And the question is why. So just, uh, like, uh, just very briefly, just two ideas in questions. And then we might get, and we'll get to the Manishtana itself. Idea number one, and I mentioned this um, recently, is that, um, is that questions are extremely important. Because, le- le- let's say for an example now. How many people here know Planck's constant? Come on, folks. All physicists, quantum physicists. This was the beginning of quantum physics. Nobody knows Planck's constant? Well, I can, I can tell you something now. That in five minutes, everybody here should be able to know it. Why? Because all you need to do is Google Planck's constant. Right? So Planck was a, was a particular physicist, Weisha chemist, who lived about around 100 years ago, and his constant is very important in understanding it's the foundational work for quantum physics. A lot of our technology is based on that constant. We don't, we don't know it. Why, don't, why will most of us not Google it once we leave this room? Because even though it is an important thing, it's the foundation for everything we do in life, in the end of the day, it doesn't matter to us so much on a, on a really pedestrian level, right? Meaning to say, it just, life works. And we let the other people who work out the microchips and computers and laser technology, which is based on this, we let other people work that out, but we don't need to know it ourselves. We have information at our fingertips all our lives, especially now in our pockets. We can have access any amount of information at any time. The reason why we don't know it is because we only are interested in information that we care about. If it doesn't actually affect us immediately, or we don't have a, a love or fascination for it, if we don't care about stamp collecting, we're not going to find out about all different types of stamps and different, uh, different values and different eras and different countries. But if we do, we're going to find out about it. So first, the first thing the Mishnah tells us over here, what the Gomorrah is telling us, is you can't simply convey information on this night. The 
the whole Seder starts off with a question. There has to be an interest. We have to engage interest. There has to be a reason why you want to know that information. That's how the Seder starts. That is the Manishtana. In fact, there's a, there is a Nobel laureate, Isidore Isaac Rabi, a, a, good, a good Jew who, we, um, who, uh, who's, um, who said when he attributed where it was that his, his, um, his uh, prowess um, started, he says and he quotes, he says, my mother made, it, made me a scientist without even knowing it. Every other child would come home from school and be asked, what did you learn today? But my mother used to ask a different question. Izzy, she would always uh, used to say, what good question did you ask today? That made the difference. It's not about information. It's the question is, is a passion. If you don't have a passion, if you don't care, it's not going to matter. It's going to go in one ear at best and go out the other ear. That's how the Seder starts. There has to be a question. There has to be a dialogue because that's the only way to stimulate the, 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 the interest of, our, of individuals, not just the children. Let's take a one-step level, one, one step deeper. The Maharal says something really remarkable. The Maharal on his Zagada, um, and in Gurus Hashem, he says the following. He says, and I just want to quote this line in Hebrew. Why is that we start with the question? He says, Ki hayadia, knowledge, he nicknames mina murgash el hamuskal. Knowledge is only accessed through what is felt and then what is thought. Okay, so similar, similar idea over here. That we can only appreciate something when we notice something when there's a feeling about it and then there's thinking about it very similar let's, let's just try to put this into into um, high definition over here that means to say that the way that the setter has to start in order is before we get to all the mugging and all the wonderful things we're going to talk about and learn we need to actually start off by understanding just noticing things noticing the differences oh well it's you know it's very unusual the kind of bread we have tonight the kind of dips we have tonight the way we're sitting what we're eating that's the way that's what we notice that stimulates the next process of knowledge in fact that is perhaps exactly what the Mishnah closes with which is the next step of the Haggadah which is you need contrast to appreciate what's going on that's what stimulates questions is contrast difference unusual uh, unusual nature of the evening there's a story which is which is told about uh, one of the, the greats in the advertising industry in the 50s, David Oglivy. He, he was one of the people who really hatched the advertising industry as we know it. And the story goes as follows, that he was walking through Central Park one, one day, and um, he noticed there was a beggar there who was sitting there, a blind beggar sitting um, in, in a corner, and he had his little cup in front of him, and everybody was walking past. And every so often, you know, somebody would throw in, you know, a dime or a nickel, and, um, and, he'd, and that, that, would be the, that, that would be the end of it. And, um, and the, the sign in front of him was written in cardboard, says, I'm blind. Um, so David went over to him and said, would you mind if I just wrote something on your sign? He says, go for it. You know, what, what does he have to lose? He wrote four words down onto it. And, um, and from that moment onwards, the blind man didn't know what was written on it, but just coins kept on coming in, nickels, dimes, quarters. You could hear the rustle of paper as well. And somehow his cup filled up, and he, he was so curious, what was it that this man wrote? So he asked a passerby, what, what is, can you, do you mind just reading my son, somebody, somebody inscribed something? And the man said, yeah, well, he just added four words. And the words are, it's spring and I'm blind. Because sometimes contrast is what allows us access into appreciating something. Now, okay, he's blind. But no, it's springtime. We can see, we can smell, we can see, we, we can see the beautiful buds that are just coming, at the tr- coming through in the trees. We can see the blossoms just coming forth, and this person can't appreciate it. That makes us feel, that makes us see. Over here at the beginning of the Seder, Manishtana. You know what? It's a little strange, isn't it different? This is a little bit of a strange one. Now that we begin education, that's where we start with. We start, start talking about the differences. Um, this is the beginning point. Hang on, you're listening. Let's just um, 
for the sake, maybe we'll just save questions towards the end, if that's all right. Um, last idea, and this relates a little more specifically to the Manishtana itself. So, um, this, is, this is an idea which is accentuated um, in a beautiful pirish called the Siach Yitzchak on the, ha- on the Haggadah, quoting the Shlaha Kodesh. And the notion is the following. Is if we look at the Manishtana, it doesn't actually all add up. It's not really the same thing. There happens to be they're all differences, right? They're all things which are a little unusual, but in the end of the day, they're not all the same. Let's think about the items that are, that are at stake, right? So we talk about matzah. Matzah is about what? Matzah is about what, 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 what's the, the, the underlying symbolism of matzah? Yes? Russia of Egypt, right? So it's like an exciting moment. It's part of the Geula process. Maror is the bitterness. So that's kind of the exile process. Right, and then we have the mesubim, the leaning, which is, that's, that's, that's regal, right? There's an element of, of redemption over there. And then we have the dipping, which again is another, seems to be another aspect of regality, which is, which is expressing itself on this night. So if you look through it, and it, it's a little bit of a strange thing, we, we, we sort of a hodgepodge of all the ideas, but some of them are really exile-esque ideas, and some of them are redemption-esque ideas, all put together. And in fact, it's actually more complex than that, because it's not as, not as glut as we, as, as we just described it. Let's think about for the matzah for a second. The matzah is also the bread that we had when we were in Egypt. Lechem on, it is the poor man's bread, it's the slave man's bread that we consumed in Egypt. So it also itself bears both the escape and the actual subjugation, the servitude. And if you think about the maror, the maror true talk is bitter and we feel the slavery when we're eating it, right? But in the end of the day, we're dipping it, which is an action, which is a regal action. Do you know what I'm saying? We need to say everything itself is a comple- has a complexity. So, so what is going on over here? How, how do these all meld together? So Siach Yitzchak says something which is most remarkable, what an incredible insight, and with this... It pulls it all together. Abarbanel says something similar in his Agada, but the Ziyach Yitzchak pulls it together in the most beautiful way, and he says the following. He says that sometimes Hashem makes it very clear to us just how miraculous Agula is by giving us signposts. It wasn't just that we had a terrible time, and now we escaped. We were a subjugated race, and now we are an independent nation. That's not the way it works. Hashem gives us signposts to the fact that He was involved all the way through this. How? How does he do that? What he does is he takes the very item, the very, the very symbol of what our life meant then, and that became the symbol of our escape. So what happens? They, on a daily basis, they didn't, you know, forget the, 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 you know, the 90-hour work weeks. They didn't have time to put meals together. They lived in, under the whip to such a degree that they could never have a full meal. That means to say they were rushing from meal to meal. They couldn't even have risen bread. You can imagine how much resentment they would have had. You can imagine how much they look at their taskmasters who eat these beautiful meals and they can't even have bread which lasts more than 18 minutes. What does Hashem do? Hashem says, you know what? They're going to chase you out. There's some people who forced you not to eat bread are going to force you not to eat bread again. But in the act of redemption, it's the same item which is going to be your access outwards. That marrow, the bitterness that you feel, you're going to feel that bitterness, but you're going to feel that bitterness as a king. As a person who's now experiencing it from the other side. You know, there's a, a, a famous Estonian um, parable which is given about a little boy who is, um, every night he'd go out to the back of his village and he'd feed the snakes. There were snakes in the little valley behind him. And, um, and, they, and the snakes got to know him and there was some sort of recognition um, of him. And he would go out there every night. And one night he went out to the, to the, to the valley to feed the snakes. And a, and a newer snake that didn't know him, large snake, um, comes by, wraps him up, and captures him in his coils. And the boy, 
the boy couldn't escape, but the snake wasn't, wasn't suffocating him, just held him. And he struggled and struggled and struggled, couldn't get out. And they say, you know, again, it has these parables go, his hair all turned white in the struggle to get out. He couldn't get that out all night. The snake releases him in the morning, and he returns to, returns to the village. And he finds that overnight, the village had been, had been pillaged and killed. Everybody, every single last person had been killed. And it was the snake, it was that snake which was his torment all night, which was actually his savior. The half deal. What the Siach Yitzhak is saying over here is that you can imagine what meal times meant to these people. And the meal times mean so much more. The same meal, the same decrepit meal, the same meal which is Lechem Oni is the sign of their Geula. That's what's happening over here in the Manishtana. The Manishtana is those items which reflected what it was and what it is, but it's through the same gateway. And that's how Hashem guides us as to what it was. That perhaps is one of the joining forces of the Manishtana. With that, we will close this particular element. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Rabbi Trump. The Torah directs us and guides us in how we should celebrate and how we should appreciate what Pesach is all about, and does so with inclusiveness. So that the entire Jewish family, everybody is at the Seder, everybody is part of redemption, and it's worked because... Aside from maybe uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and maybe even, I don't know the statistics, more so than even on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, everybody has a Seder. All kinds of Jews of all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds. Pesach is very much on the map in the lives of the Jewish nation for all kinds of Jews. And they're all there. They're all at the Seder. My favorite person at the Seder is Uncle Max. Uncle Max, you know, he went to Cheder, maybe, he can, can't read a little bit of the Haggadah, but by the time we're up to Dayenu, he, he's, he's, that's where he's up to. He's up Dayenu. Enough. He says, you know, let's get to the matzah balls. You know, he, he's interested in, in the Seder as he understands it. The gastronomical experience. Everybody's there. It really, really, really worked. But what's interesting is that we have an order of Arbo Abonim at the Seder, which of course is the Chacham, the Rasha, the Tam, and the She'en Yedeya Lish'ol. Why that order? Chacham, of course, is the most desirous of all sons. If everybody can, we would have a Chacham. Most of us do, Baruch Hashem. Nobody wants the Rasha. That would be at the other extreme, so then it should be last. If you want to go from, you know, least to best, so maybe you would have, you know, Sheni De'elishal, Tam, Rasha, Chacham, Rasha, Tam, Sheni De'elishal, Chacham. It makes no sense. The order seems to not be at all one with a rationale. And we can't really intuit what it is that the Balagada does. Furthermore, there's a completely different order of the sons in the Torah. In the Torah, the first son to be mentioned, believe it or not, is the first son is Russia. And the question as asked by the Russia. The next person to be addressed, the next Psukim, are those that we would address toward the Shain Yadeal the third son mentioned in the Torah, also in Parshas Bo, 
is the son we call the Tam. He asks just this simple, basic question, Mazos. So it's the order so far is Chacham, excuse me, Russia, She'ene Yedeya Lish'ol, Tam, and then Chacham appears in Parshas Ve'eschanan, V'hoya, excuse me, not V'hoya, Ki Yish'olcha Vincha Mochar Le'mar Mo Ha'edos V'achukim Ha'mishpotam Sh'atziv Ha'shem Alukeinu Eschem. So it's a completely different order altogether. And perhaps we can take this all at once and answer all of the questions we just asked. The question about the order of the sons that is hard to, in, hard to understand and see the rationale of in the Haggadah, and the order in the Torah, which is of course also difficult to understand and is very different from the order in the Haggadah. Uh, perhaps it is because ultimately what the Torah is doing for us is introducing us to ourselves. We're getting to see the history of the Jewish people and the reality that we lived. Because factually we are told that so many of us did not leave Mitzrayim. Ilu Hayasham Lo Nigal was the reality. That actually happened. Vachamushim Olu. They went out with so many of us left behind. Chazal say that it was quietly uh, happened at Marcus Choshech, that those who wouldn't want to leave did not make it through that night, through the nights of Marcus Choshech. And those who would want to, they of course were sprung free and followed Moshe into the Midbar. But that there were so many of these people who, and we hate to call them Rishoyim, who perished. And the fact of Ilu HaYashem Lo Nigol is not just theoretical, but it actually happened. So those are the first mentioned, because that's where we came from. We came from all of those gates of defilement, those Memtes, Sha'are, Tuma, that we had to leave. More than leaving Egypt, we had to get Egypt out of us. It's easy to take the Jews out of Egypt. It's harder to take the bit of Egypt out of the Jew. That was true. So the first thing that happens is, we are told, that's a challenge, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says. And Moshe Rabbeinu tells us, you'll have sons. And you know, life is that way. We all start out with the Yetzir Urov. We start out that little bit of a Russia. My wife's grandfather, Rabbi Levine, told me how, how he was once at the home of one of the great, great, Musar Rebbeim of the uh, uh, yeshiva of um, Rav Yosef Yaisel Hurvitz, the Navardic, I think it was the Navardic's son-in-law, Rav Yafi, and one of his sons or grandsons was running around the table, a small little child, almost an infant, and he looked at him and said, Ooh, that's a very, very Lithuanian attitude of... Uh, how to look at a child, but it was true. So that's the Russia we have to deal with. And that was the first step of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So that was what we were, and that's how we had to leave our past behind. So Russia's mentioned first. But then what were us, what were we all, what were most of us in the masses of the Jewish people? We had not yet understood 
what it is to mean to be a God's people, to be an Am Segula. We did not know that we are going to be receiving a Torah, and Torah is going to mean inquiry, to ask questions, to inquire, to know, to come to understand. And then to be given and then ask again. Oh, that's what Torah is all about. Eventually we understood that. The introduction to Matan Torah, as we read it in Parshas Yisro, is the Jewish people lining up to ask Moshe Rabbeinu questions. But that's not what we were. We were a people who would say, you know, whatever you tell us to do, God, we'll do. We were, all of us, the She'eno Yodea Lish'o. We just didn't understand that the nature of the relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to be one of such an interactive quality that he will say, we will ask, and we will ask again. And we will be given a Torah that will be mostly Torah Shabal where it's going to be okay, but what exactly does this word mean, and why is it written that way, and what is its understanding, and how many levels of meaning can I mine and pull out treasures of understanding? We didn't understand that. We didn't know that yet. We were all basically the She'eni Yodei Elishol. The Higarat addresses that kind of a personality. There are mitzvahs, there are great things that have to be done, and because of those mitzvahs, in merit of those mitzvahs, we are taken from Mitzrayim, and in order to fulfill those mitzvahs. This was a rudimentary lesson for a people who were all, or most of us, the next step was, wow, but we're being taken out with so many miracles. We've experienced months where for one month after the other, Makos, plagues that were brought down upon the Egyptians, and ultimately they are going to have to let us go. Then, of course, we see Makos Bechoros. So we see all of this tremendous power, and we, of course, at the very least would ask Mazos, like a Tam, someone who's very innocent, and that Tamimus means an innocence and a wholesome innocence, but at the same time, a certain simplicity. Again, because what's going to strike us is, and the Torah continues, Look at the power. Look at that great, mighty hand. The Yod HaChazaka. The Zroa HaNatuya. The Shak and Awe, if you will. That's something that did move us, and something that did startle us, and caused us to take notice. And that's the next level. We start to ask questions. We go out into the Midbar. We're, giving, we're, we're given man. We are able to defeat Amalek. Wow. And finally, we have to become a Chacha. But that takes 40 years in the Midbar. That doesn't happen right away. And so, toward the end of Parshish Kisavo, Moshe Rabbeinu just says as much. He says, takes a long time to become the Chacham. A whole life of experience and understanding and patient learning. And maybe we become the Chacham. The Jewish people has had that experience nationally. We were taken to a Har Sinai. And then we faltered a little bit, and we needed more guidance. There was an eagle. There were ups and downs in the midbar. Eventually, we were worthy 
of yet another covenant in Arvos Moab and of entry into Eretz Yisrael. When we arrive at the doorsteps of Eretz Yisrael, we're also there where you can call us the Chacham. And so, yes, finally, when talking to us again and sharing with us the, the Dibros in Parshas Ve'ezchanan, the second Dibros, the second Dibros, the Torah then says, Ki when your son, the Chacham, asks, And that Eschem, people always ask, why does the Chacham say Eschem? You know, after all, the Russia says Lachem, and he says Eschem, and the difference is, he says Eschem, he's asking all about these mitzvahs, he's asking Moshe and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron, you were told so much, you were given over this Torah, Tell it to us. You were given a Torah Shebechsav. I want to understand it better. I want to mind the treasures of Torah Shebalpeh as well. And finally, there's also a great difference between them. And that is that in the case of the, uh, the Russia, obviously, he looks not at the mitzvahs. He says, meaning, what are you doing? It's all about the action as opposed to the rationale behind the action. He's interested really only in that which you could see and what doing can possibly mean to God. Why does doing something mean anything to God at all? Does God care about what we do? That's the kind of question that the Russia would ask. But no, you see, it's not about what I do, it's about the will of God and Eidos, Klukim, and Mishpatim, so that's the perspective of, of, the, of the Chacham. So, in fact, what we do have then in the Torah order is a very rational order, a very understandable order, not only historical, but really of moving from being the, the, the Russia on the one hand, and then having lack of knowledge like Sheinu Deilish Ol, having a Tmimazdika, a startling awareness of things and, and a curiosity like a, like a Tam, and then finally moving on to being and growing to become the Chacham. The Jewish people after that began another era. And that was the era, the real era of, of Jewish history. So we were the Chacham. And the Balagada picks it up from where we all were the Chacham. That's what we were. That's what we became. And we had Yehoshua and Asniel ben Knaz and the great prophets and then the Anshe Knesses Hagdola and Tanoim and Amoroim. But there was the next era and there were Hellenists. Jews. The quiet little secret is that the challenge, for instance, in the Neis Chanukah was from within the Jewish nation from after what came Chacham, what came was Russia. And then there were all kinds of minim, sectarians. In the Roman era, these minim ultimately became non-Jews. Eventually, a complete break occurred. And those, quote, end quote, early Christians became no longer a part of our nation. History was then Chacham, Russia, and then Tam. A tremendous period of time where we did not have the amount of literacy, certainly not the amount of people studying, learning Torah as we do today, but it was an era where you could not really find a Jew who was proud to be a Jew who was, God forbid, Mechalal Shabbos openly brazenly. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they weren't aware. Maybe they didn't yet have printed, published books. 
and no one had codified as much as the Mishnah Brura has, and we don't have, you know, so-and-so's guide to medical or medicines for kosher for Passover. We, we, they didn't have that kind of uh, advanced level of uh, ability to come to so much knowledge, and you would say that that was the era for many, many hundreds of years of, of the Tam. Good, wholesome Yidin who would be simply following, they would ask Mazos, they would accept the answer. <coughs> and then there's our era. Now, of course, these, these, these eras overlap. They don't come to a distinct end one day and begin with another era the next day. And then, of course, there's our era, which arguably is the era of the She'en Yodea Lish'ol. Our era in which there are just so many who don't know enough to ask. You know, She'en Yodea Lish'ol doesn't mean they don't know to ask. It means they're not aware of enough to even know that there's something to ask about. When you have so many who are just so far away and are not at all at fault for that. Not at all. But they are at the table. And we need to bring them to the table. And that's very powerfully how and why the Balagodo gives us that order because that's the order in which history continued to unfold after the biblical era. The Chacham, the Rosha, the Tam, that period of tremendous Tamimus, if not of great scholarship uh, in, amongst the masses, and then the period of She'en Yudei Elishol, which is our period, and a time with great responsibility, as we said, as we began, to make sure they're all at the table, to make sure they're all at the Seder, to make sure they're part of Jewish life, because they really are. They are our brothers our sisters, and they don't know how much there is to ask, and they don't know how wondrous and beautiful and magnificent all of Jewish life is, let alone the blessings of a Pesach, but they're there. They're at the Seder. In our time, this, the time the She'en Yudea, Lish'ol. And so, we come to the Seder and we bring together all of the Jewish children, and we hope that Mir Hashem, by asking, by giving, by discussing, will have Uncle Max and everybody else who's there become so much enriched by this fantastic Yom Tov and so free, really set free, to, to raise their spirit, their Ruchnius, up toward Hashem, closer, closer and even closer. Thank you. sign of our times uh, all, <clears throat> all my stories are true uh, some of them may not have as yet occurred but they're all true uh, this is a true story that I don't know if it occurred or not but a teacher in one of the uh, schools asked uh, what are the four cups the four kosovs and the child answered, the Merlot, Cabernet, Malaga, and Concord. Which is a sign of our times. It's interesting that in the general world, uh, people drink wine to forget. 
and we drink wine to remember. In the, in the Gemara it says, And therefore at all life events in the Jewish world, we begin with wine. The Shabbos begins with wine. The uh, marriage ceremony begins with wine. The circumcision ceremony, uh, the redemption of the firstborn, the Pesach Seder. What's with the wine? So in the Torah we see uh, that wine was used as an excuse to forget, to be able to put the tragedy behind us, so to speak. Noah, the whole world is destroyed. He's saved. He's saved for a purpose. Vayochel Noah, Isho Adoma, Rashi says, Nasechulin, Noah somehow lost it. He saw the whole world destroyed in front of him and he was depressed. He couldn't handle it. So he became nothing. He got drunk. Terrible things happened. Boom. The lesson of the marble is lost in the cup of wine. So Chazal came, you know, the rabbis, all rumors to the contrary notwithstanding, the rabbis really have the best interests of the Jewish people at heart. Because they're not working for the Jewish people. They're working for the Rabbani Shalom. Any Rav that doesn't feel that way is not going to do the job. Because you can't win with the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu said, you tell me to lift them up. Who, what? They don't want. God doesn't listen to those complaints. He's not interested in that. Your job, you're working for me. So as part of it, the rabbis interpreted the four words of Geula that appear in the parsha of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and they instituted them with four cups of wine so that it would be we would remember what are we supposed to remember so the first thing is that we're to remember that it's a process God did not take us out of Egypt in an instant. It wasn't a one fell swoop. He could have brought Marcus Bechorus right away. What do we need the whole spiel with the other nine? And what do we need Moshe's frustrations? 
Me was bossy, oh Paro. Since I came to Paro, you made it worse. The Rabbonisham could have avoided all of that. The Rabbonisham was teaching us a long term lesson in personal life and in national Jewish life. Gula is a process. We don't want it to be a process. We want it right. You know, we want Mashiach now, tomorrow. Let him come, taken care of. The Rambam points out to us that that's not how it's going to work, and that's not how it does work. So it's a process. How does the process begin? Votesi. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. You'll escape slavery. You'll be out. So that's a physical thing. Yesterday I was in Egypt. Now I'm in the desert. I'm out. But it has no uh, spiritual ramification to it. Yesterday I was in Pinsk. Today I'm in Rosh Pinah. Yesterday... I was in the Ukraine today. I'm in Kibbutz Deganya. So, okay, so that's my choice. That's what I did. I went out. But going out is the beginning of Gula. Because whatever, and I make no judgments, God forbid, but whatever is going to be the future of the Jewish people, it's tied up with the land of Israel. So then there's the Hitzalti. I'm going to save you. I just took you out so when I have to save you. A person has to feel that he was saved, that she was saved, that her children were saved. I had a moment, uh, an epiphany in my life. Even rabbis sometimes are impressed. I was in uh, Yerushalayim, uh, it must be 25 years ago. And there was a certain family from Los Angeles whom I knew well, from Beverly Hills, uh, Spiegel. was a Hungarian Jew who in the summer of 1944, he and his wife and their six-year-old son went to Auschwitz. And he and his wife survived, but their six-year-old son did not. And when after the war, somehow he made his way to the United States, and then he made his way to California, and he made a a fortune of money, and they had other children, Uh, he still was haunted by his child that didn't come out. So he gave uh, Yad Vashem, I think initially, $9 million dollars, uh, to build what they call the Children's Museum in Yad Vashem. Then I know he gave him another five million. So I was in Yerushalayim the day that it opened. And since I knew Spiegel, 
So I said, I'm going to go and see what the museum is like. So I've been to Holocaust museums all over the world. I'm sure you have as well. So I know what to expect. I know I'm going to see a room full of shoes and a room full of toys and a room full of hair. You know, I'm, I'm a bookie already. And that's why I was completely unprepared for what I did see. I'm sure many of you have been there as well. But you walk into a room that's... Uh, almost the size of your shul upstairs, with enormously high ceiling, and the room is pitch black. It is so dark, you cannot put one foot in front of the other without holding on to the railing. And as your eyes slowly become accustomed to the darkness, you notice there are little pinpoints of light in the roof of the room. And then you hear a voiceover, a tape. And the tape plays names. Hannah Greenberg, three years old, Warsaw. Chaim Goldberg, seven years old, Vilna. Names, 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 till you can bear it no longer. And I ran out of the room to the blinding Jerusalem sunlight And I thought to myself for the first time, my name is not on the tape. I'm of the age. They meant me too. But my name is not on the tape. If my name is not on the tape, then I owe owe the Jewish people something. I owe my creator something. I owe myself something. I was saved. So now it's personal. It's not Holocaust studies. It's not a museum. It's personal. Pesach is not a commemoration. Pesach is personal. I went out from Egypt. I'm saved for a purpose. And the purpose is far grander than we imagine. We sell ourselves short. And then it says, Velokachti. So I, uh, I've done a lot of traveling in my life, Baruch Hashem. And I'm comfortable traveling. I've been in uh, quite a few situations. I've been in airplanes that uh, in the middle decided not to fly. And I've been in uh, all sorts of, you know, funny situations. But there's one situation that always terrifies me. And that is that I land in a strange city and the people who are supposed to pick me up are not there. And this is, uh, to show you how old I am, uh, this is in an age without cell phones, and I have no telephone number, and I don't have the quarter for the pay phone, because I travel light. <laughs> Nobody there to take me. I made this whole trip, Nothing. So eventually, eventually, somebody comes. 
so far. The Rabbani Shalom is waiting for us at the airport. I took you out, Otsesi. It's salty. You personally feel that you survived. Now what do you do? Who do you meet? Who's taking you the rest of the way? Yitzchok Avinu said to Avimelech, when Avimelech wanted to take his wife from him, which today would hardly even be a movie, Yitzchak said only one word to him. You got a government, you got a constitution, you got a police force, you got an economy. Yeah, you got everything. But nobody's afraid of God. God doesn't exist here. And tragically that can be said not only on the non-Jewish world. Doesn't exist. It's uh, an exercise in knowledge, in intellect, in spirit, in social development, in progressiveness, in whatever you want to call it. But uh, where's the Rebbeinu Shalom? Where's the Yerushalayim? So the Rebbeinu Shalom says, I'm taking you to me. I'm going to meet you at the plane. You got out? There's somebody there waiting. Got a sign. I once uh, came to an airport and it said rabbit wine. (laughs) I knew they meant me. But that's still not the end. There's a fourth cup. The Goalti. I will redeem you. What does it mean? I will redeem you again. I redeem you from yourself. I made you a new person. The Gula is dependent upon us. Dependent upon our ability to redeem ourselves. To see ourselves in a better light. And that redemption is part of the process that's almost the end of the process. That Pesach represents and that the eventual redemption also represents. The corollary to the four cups is uh, the piyut of Dayenu, which is one of the strangest piyutim in the Jewish ritual, Elu, if God would have only brought us here, as Ayenu, if they only would have done that, what's for Adayenu? Why is that Adayenu? The Adayenu is that every step of the way that the Rabboni Shalom brought the Jewish people 
if a person appreciated that that was a step on the way, then dayenu, then it's enough, then it's worth it already, then you see it already. And that's the time that we live in, I feel. So many great things are happening. And we are uh, oblivious to them. We're very, very critical people. Israel is not good enough. The government is not good enough. The, the, the Torah world is not good enough. The, the, nobody is good enough. And by the Rabbani Shalom, it's Dayenu. It is good enough. It's fine the way it is. Make the best of it. And that great lesson lies in Pesach as well. And that is why the Jewish people are privileged to see what we have seen in our time. To see the rebirth of the Jewish people. To see a Jewish state. To see the rebirth of Torah. I had the uh, pleasure, uh, Rabbi Trump was uh, kind enough to uh, come with me. I spoke uh, one evening in Yeshiva University last, uh, in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzchokhanan last week. Look in the base medrash, uh, hundreds and hundreds of young men, 10 o'clock at night, you know, they could all be in a bar, they don't have to be there, and there are plenty of Jews in the bar. Who imagined such a time? I can tell it to you because I'm the oldest person in the room. I can tell you that we never imagined it. I can tell you that uh, my father took me to Rabarn Cutler when I was barely bar mitzvah. And he was in a ramshackle farmhouse in Lakewood. My father knew him from Europe. He said, we want to go, I want to go see Rabbi Cutler. So we went to Lakewood. And I was only uh, their only child, so I was an adult. I always went with him wherever he went. And uh, he said, uh, how many Talmudim are in Lakewood? So he said, 27. My father asked him, how many Talmudim do you expect that there'll be in Lakewood? And the Rashi Shiva said, Fufzik Efshir Ahundert. So today there's another Aaron Cutler in Lakewood, and he wants to get 10,000. He's up to 9,200. So I'm not talking quality, but it's just, it's a miracle. Dayenu. But you have to learn how to say Dayenu. You have to be able to say, we appreciate what we have. According to the Maral, there's a fifth coast, Vevesi, regarding Eretz royal and the ultimate Gula. I can't speak for God, but in the process, we're on the way to the fifth coast as well. to a strong and vibrant Jewish people 
to shake off the shackles of the exile, the mental shackles, what binds us to the pettiness of things. You know, I'm a great-grandfather, Baruch Hashem. I don't mean great, as you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm a great rabbi, but this is a great-grandfather. <laughs> so uh, the, when you're in this exalted position in life, so uh, I bought a toy for one of my great-grandchildren. And I did a lot of research on buying the toy. Now, it has to be educational and not dangerous and attractive and within my price range. So I, I put a lot of effort into buying the toy, and I bought the toy, and I brought it, I think he was two years old, and he spent the next hour playing with the box. <laughs> and I said to myself, that's the Jewish people. We're playing with the box. God gave us the toy that he picked, the effort that he put in to make, and we're playing with the box. Because Kinar Yisrael Ve'elaveyu. We're a child. Ha'ben Yakili Ephraim in Yelich Ha'ashuim. That's how the Novi described us. We're a child at play. So we're playing with the box. But Pesach comes to remind us that there's something in the box. And that that is what is meant for us. And that that is what the four cups of wine bring to our memory. So then we can be Zoche, that we'll have the great wine yet to come. And the wine of the complete redemption of the Jewish people and of the world generally, because the world is dependent upon us. And we'll be so clear together that Benisan Nigalu, Benisan Asidin Ligoel. Thank you.